You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Thank you for joining us this week as we continue our teaching series on the book of Revelation. Good morning, Real Life. I am almost back in this time zone. We got back from Turkey Friday morning at 1.30 a.m., so I'm almost back. So if I seem, never mind, bad joke. I'll cut that one off before I even get there. Uh, college students, welcome back. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Uh, my name is Marty Solomon. If, you don't, if you're new, if you're a new college student, I am the president of Impact Campus Ministries, and uh, we are a national minis- campus ministry organization around the country. We have teams here on the Palouse, uh, both at both campuses, Washington State and University of Idaho. And This is our kickoff Sunday for all of you college students. Everything, all our programming takes off this week. And it takes off this week because the next two weeks are really important. Um, There's maybe not a decision that will impact how this year impacts the rest of your life more than the people that you surround yourself with this year. And there's a window of time before everything starts to cascade like a waterfall of anxiety upon your year. And that's these first couple weeks um, and, and who you choose to surround yourself with makes all the difference in the world. So we try to just give you all of our connection points up front. So if you're a college student, there is a booth right outside the auditorium, a banner there, a couple of our teammates, my coworkers, Kevin and Eric, are out there. They've got all kinds of information from connection to uh, care groups, life groups. We're having a cookout tonight, free food. Always, always a positive thing. You guys awake out there? Okay. Uh, Free food, 5 p.m., Eastside City Park. I'm going to be in Pullman. Eric and Kevin are going to be here in Moscow. And uh, it's just a great place to meet people. Even if you're not new, if you're a part of our ministries, college students, come to the cookout and help us uh, introduce ourselves to new college students and help them get connected. Also, if any of you do know me and know who I am and uh, want to find out more about my class, my class starts back up this week. Um, you can go to that website there, bemadiscipleship.com, B-E-M-A, discipleship.com, and get any of that information about my program, my ministry, my discipleship stuff, and uh, we're going to start, we do a flipped classroom, it's pretty fun. Uh, anybody a part of it? Yeah? Nobody? Okay, good. Um, <laughs> that Fail. But uh, come, come uh, figure out all that kind of stuff and get introduced to anything tonight and have a hamburger. It'd be great. All right. Book of Revelation, you guys ready? All right, we're still working through the book of Revelation. Aaron and I wrote this while we were in Turkey. I have not had a chance to practice it yet. So are you guys ready to find out with me what I'm talking about? Good. Uh, we, we have been in the middle of a conversation on Revelation. Two weeks ago when we left off at Revelation, we were talking about the great games. And John has been, uh, on a micro level, John has been talking about this cosmic we might, we might say a cosmic Armageddon, not a literal Armageddon, but a metaphorical cosmic battle not happening in the future, but happening very much in our present. And not so much our present, although that's true, but their present. Their, the original audience of Revelation has this, this not battle of flesh and blood, but battle of the principalities and powers of their world, empire and shalom clashing. And so two weeks ago we looked at On a macro level, John is casting this picture of a great games. 
like the Olympic Games kind of idea. And there's a great competition going on. And we find ourselves as athletes in this great competition. And the way that we run what? Can you remember? Tells the world who our God is and what our God is like. And so the way that we engage the games, the way that we run these spiritual races matters. And I think that may actually play into what we're gonna look at today. And so I just wanna kind of jump right in here. Revelation chapter 10, we're gonna cover 10 and 11 today. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. Now you might remember, we left off with a whole bunch of what being sounded. Trumpets, right? This is, the in, this is where the games are officially opened. Well, we haven't heard the last trumpet yet. And so we, we kind of left off in the middle of this crescendo as we're waiting for this seventh and final trumpet to finally announce the opening of these games. And I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. Now, this, uh, let's go back to that last slide. This, this image here, uh, if anybody has their text memorized, like those Jews of the first century, this image pulls you back to the book of Ezekiel. A rainbow over his head. Uh, legs like pillars of fire might even have echoes of Daniel. These are images that aren't new. They're not being conjured up, but these are images that pull you back to writings that have actually happened five, six, 700 years prior to the book of Revelation. Okay, let's keep going. And he had a little scroll open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring and when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Now, one of the images that gets pulled up here is this angel stands with one foot on the land and one foot on the sea. Now, this is a very, very common Roman image. In fact, while we were in Turkey, Aaron and I had a chance to follow one of our, I might call him a colleague, a fellow friend of ours who leads other trips in Turkey. And we were going one way from west to east in Turkey, and he was going from east to west in Turkey, and we met up in the middle and we're like, hey, what's going on? And so we got to kind of follow him around at one of the sites, and he was talking about this panel right here. This is a panel called, Cla sorry, PG-13. Um, <laughs> we, we, we had to make an executive decision, like, are broken off genitals okay to show? We, we didn't know. So I don't, any complaints, Aaron at liferotp.com. He... He's the one that made the call. I have the email. Um, so, sorry. But Cla Claudius here, Claudius, master of land and sea. Nudity, in, now I don't, I'm not trying to be crude with this panel. Nudity in the Roman art world is always a show of divinity. So this panel, without saying anything, says Claudius, Emperor Claudius is divine. He's God wrapped in flesh. Now if you notice, Claudius stands, and if you can see it, on the right side is like a mermaid almost like figure. That's the sea, 
and over on the, is this cornucopia of, uh, I don't know, did that, is that the right word? The cornucopia, the, the, all the produce of the land. So this is Claudius, master of land and sea. In a Roman world, if you want to say that this person rules it all, there's nothing that this person doesn't rule. You say this person rules, is the master of, the god of, the ruler of land and sea. Does that make sense? So when John opens and he says, or he doesn't open, he's in the middle of a conversation, he says it's an angel with his, with his right leg and his left leg on land and sea. Whoever this angel works for must be the ruler of it all. In fact, that's where it's gonna head next. Let's keep going. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heaven and what is in it and the earth and what is in it and the sea and what is in it and there would be no more delay. But in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel. So we're in this crescendo of these trumpets to be sounded. And John says, I saw this angel standing there and this angel worked for the one who created it all, who is Lord over it all. And this angel says, there will be no more delay. Now tell me if you are the audience of Revelation, how does that sound? There will be no more delay. Oh yeah, thank you, somebody gets it. Oh, good, because I feel like this chapter is never going to end. Not so much the chapter of Revelation, but the chapter of life they find themselves in, where they're all laying down their lives for what they believe in. Will this ever come to an end? Because I see no end in sight. And this angel says, all right, enough. Here comes the seventh trumpet. There will be no more delay. Yes, okay? The mystery of God would be fulfilled just as announced to his servants, the what? Prophets. Now pay attention to that. His servants, the prophets. That's gonna come back here in just a moment. Let's keep going. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again saying, go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. Any students of the Bible in here that go, I've heard that before. Uh, yeah, I hope there's a few of you that have read your Old Testament enough that you're like, didn't Ezekiel have that exact same experience? The answer is yes, because it's in the text, it's all, it's all these, re where did we say that the whole chapter started? By referencing what book? Ezekiel, and now it references Ezekiel, and then it's gonna reference Ezekiel, and it's gonna keep referencing Ezekiel. Why? Because John's wanting to call you back, not forward. He's wanting to call you backward to say, we've been here before. We can do this, everybody. We can persevere because we have. If you're here today, you're here today, one of my favorite teachers used to say. If you're here today, you're here today. It means you made it. It means you made it, all right? Take and eat. Uh, so I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must what? A, a, 
again prophesy. Because what was Ezekiel told when he first had to eat the scroll? And we're like, I don't know. I never read Ezekiel. How will we ever understand Revelation if we've never read the material that it's based on? We'll think all kinds of crazy things, like this is about some crazy future interaction with Russia and Lebanon. Like, we we won't realize it's not about that, it's about this. So we really ought to read our text. We really ought to have those Hebrew scriptures in us because they actually matter. Because if we don't, then we get our New Testament wrong. I mean, I can't, I can't tell you how many times I've been told like, like, well, the New Testament, I mean, that's the Jesus part. That's the part that matters. The Old Testament is nice. But no, you don't get your New Testament right if you don't have your Old Testament. You don't get your New Testament right if you don't have your Old Testament. It's all commentary on inspired, authoritative. I, was told, I, I wasn't gonna use that word, sorry. Not commentary, it's inspired, authoritative writing based on scriptures that have existed for hundreds and thousands of years prior. So, you must again prophesy, you must again prophesy. But Ezekiel already did this. I know, John, but here we are again. And you you have to prophesy again because my people need encouragement. My people need to be told how to persevere. My people need to be reminded that they're running a great race because it's too easy to forget in my preaching. Do you understand? Like You have to keep telling the story. I wonder, I wonder, if since Revelation... We've, we've been around here again. Like I wonder if this will always be a part of our cyclical human experience. Not that humanity's not moving somewhere, not that it's not going somewhere, but there will come a day when it's either us or our children or our children's children will need to know what it's like to persevere. I promise you, I promise you. Because that's the way it's always worked. You must again prophesy, but now I'm starting to get on a rabbit trail. You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. And then I was given a measuring rod like a staff and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Have I heard this before? Say, yes, guess, now you don't even know, but guess what book? Oh, it's crazy, it's crazy, it's crazy. If you don't believe me, go read Ezekiel 40, 41 and 42 and you're gonna be like, ah, Ezekiel copied Revelation. No, it's the other way around. Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it's given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Any mathematicians in the room? How many, what are we talking? 42 months is another way of saying three and a half years, and that's gonna become incredibly relevant here in just a moment, but let me just stop for a moment and say, if you have three and a half years, three and a half is exactly half of seven. Now, if you're Jewish, the number seven means, don't say perfection, uh, say completion, because there's seven days. There's seven days of created order. So three and a half means exactly half of completion. It's not the whole thing, meaning your tribulation has an expiration date. (laughs) Come on now, come on, come on. Your persecution, your suffering, 
And it's hard for us to relate to, because quite frankly, we don't have, you might have personal persecution and suffering, but we as a people don't have persecution and suffering. So, so this is hard for us to relate to, but to the people of Revelation, your persecution, the sword, the Roman death that you are all experiencing, the four horsemen, it has an expiration date. It's not seven, it's three and a half. Yeah. Come on, come on now. Leave that out. 42 months, let's keep going. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, hold on to that, and they will prophesy for 1260 days. Ah, any really good mathematicians? What does that come out to be? It's three and a half years, very good. It's exactly three and a half years. So there's three and a half years, and three and a half years, I wonder if we'll see any more three and a half years before we're done. And why three and a half years other than, let's find out, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours out from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. That's a weird reference. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Now, I can remember being a 12-year-old adolescent and I read the Left Behind series. <laughs> Boy, did I. Could not wait for the movie to come out. Come on, Kirk Cameron, bring it. And I was, and I remember like, I remember growing up in this dispensational eschatology that was like the two witnesses. Who are the two witnesses? And they're gonna be these two future people that will play this key role in the end time. And I just had not been taught how to think like a Jew. Because that's not at all what they would do with this. This is apocalyptic literature. Would they go forward or would they go backward? Would they go into the, say text, text. You see two witnesses, when, when you're a Jew and you hear two witnesses, you always think of the two, great, the two greatest prophets, Moses and Elijah. Ah, some of you are attracted. Some of you are finishing my sentences. Very well done. So you have Moses and you have Elijah, the, great, the greatest two Judaic prophets, the greatest two voices, the greatest two witnesses. And this was very common in Jewish thought. In fact, I wanna show you just one example of how this works and why John is calling upon it. One of the places that this would always come up, we have all kinds of midrash, uh, all kinds of record of oral traditions that would put Moses and Elijah in some, some of the very similar stories, made up stories, but these legends that they would tell to put Moses and Elijah on the scene together. One of them was connected to Psalm 42 and 43. Psalm 42 and 43 were two Psalms that were written to go together. You'll notice that because they have the same chorus. They have the exact same refrain in Psalm 42 and 43. Now Psalm 42 and 43 were, were, uh, was a song that was meant to be sung in times of great persecution and oppression. Do you suppose this would be relevant to the conversation about Revelation? Okay, let's go ahead and read this quickly. Psalm 42. Uh, okay, let me go back to, actually, let, let's go, let me go back because I should point that out. I will grant my authority to my what? Two witnesses. Okay, let's, un let's uncover this. Psalm 42. To the choir master, a masculine of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? 
My tears have been my food day and night. While they were saying to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. Do you suppose that this might have been a very popular song that they might have sung during the days of Revelation? I think so. I think so. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Misar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. But by day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy, relevant to Revelation? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, is that chorus, why are you cast down, O oh my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause. This is Psalm 43. Against ungodly people, from the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? So then listen. Send out your light and your truth and let them lead me. The, Jews, the Jewish teachers for th hundreds of years said, what is the psalmist talking about? Send forth your light and your truth. Well, one of the things that the Jews said was when you're in times of great oppression, when you're in times where you cry out, hope in God, my salvation and my hope, my enemies are asking me, where is your God? What do you do? And the Jews went to Psalm 43 and they said, pray for light and pray for truth. Now, who was truth? If you were to take truth and personify it, don't say Jesus, think like a Jew before Jesus. Who is truth? Moses, who was passionate, had chutzpah, was kana, say kana. Good, you even said it right, kana. Who had the fire, the fire of who? Elijah. Who are your two prophets that you go to when you care about truth? Moses and Elijah. But you're asking God to send forth his light. Who is light? Somebody say Messiah. Isaiah 42, send out your light to the Gentiles, speaking of Messiah. So the ancient Jewish teachers said, when you are in oppression, Psalm 43 tells us to pray for Moses, pray for Elijah, and pray for Messiah. Let's finish the psalm. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. 
Why are, here's that chorus. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The Jews taught when you are in oppression, pray for Moses, pray for Elijah, pray for Messiah. It was a Jewish way of going back to the text and say, pray for the deliverance of God. But watch what John does. (laughs) Are you guys ready? (laughs) Next verses. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. These two witnesses. Revelation 11.3. These two witnesses, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, trick question for you, unless you're a real student of Zechariah, who are the two olive trees? If you know your Zechariah, you know it's the people of God. Who are the two lampstands? What were lampstands? Even in Revelation, you don't have to be an expert in Old Testament. What was lampstands? And where have we seen lampstands before? The seven churches were all depicted by lampstands. So a lampstand represents what? The people of God. Olive trees represent the people of God. Lampstands represent the people of God. These two witnesses are who? The people of God. And into this Old Testament teaching, this legend that said, when you are oppressed, pray for Moses, pray for Elijah, and pray for Messiah. John says, amen, and guess who you are? You are Moses, you are Elijah, and you are Messiah in this world. The way that you run your race tells the world what your God is like. Don't just sit back and pray that God would deliver you. Go be the overcomer in a world that needs to see light in the midst of darkness. <laughs> yeah. Woo! Woo! I should not practice my sermons more often. I have, I have four minutes left. Okay. And if anyone would harm them, listen, if anyone would harm them, fire pours out from their mouth and consumes their foes. That sounds pretty cool. We're gonna go be the two witnesses in the world, you and me. We're gonna go be, and if anybody tries to harm us, fire is gonna pour out of our mouth. Yeah. Hold on. And if anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. Oh, yeah. They have the power to shut the sky so that no, who had the power to shut the sky that it wouldn't rain? Yes, Elijah, yes. Who, when, how long did it not rain? Yeah, three and a half years. This is so good. Some of you guys are like, you have lost your mind. Yes, I have. All of these are references to Elijah saying, you are the one who has the power to be the, what did, I told you to hold on to some at the beginning where God said, I'm gonna give it to my prophets. You are the prophets. Okay, but let's keep reading. Sounds pretty good, right? They have the power to shut up the sky that no rain may fall on the days of their prophesying. 
and they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood. And who turned the waters into blood? Yes, 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 yes. It's in the text. To strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. This isn't about the future. This is about the past. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Time out. I thought you just said that if anybody tried to harm me, fire would pour forth from my, oh, from my mouth, not from my sword. By the way, at the beginning of the book of Revelation, Jesus shows up with the sword of his mouth. The kingdom of God doesn't, doesn't fight with the weapons of this world. The kingdom of God fights with word. Do you understand why everything is in the text? Because the power lies in word. So fire will, but they get killed. They get killed. Let's keep going. Uh, Conquer them and kill them. Next slide. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt where the Lord was crucified. That's weird. And three and a half days, there's that three and a half. And three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. You see, if you... If you go out to be these prophets, make no mistake about it. This story is not going to be easy. It's not going to be pretty. The people of Revelation go to lay their life down. They go to die. They go to die. It doesn't look good. When you look at it from the outside, it doesn't look good. People are gloating over the dead bodies of the prophets because they've been conquered and they have been killed. Let's keep going. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. Where have we seen this before? Somebody say the book of Ezekiel 37, Valley of Dry Bones. Three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. They heard in a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. Who was told to come up here? Who who didn't die but got taken up in chariots of fire when the Lord said, come up here? Mm. (laughs) And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. At that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Now we need to stop here as we walk through Revelation. But the point of John, what is at stake in these great games? Everything is at stake because the way that you run, the way that you prophesy, the way that you choose to engage this mission tells the world what God is like. And make no mistake about it, if you choose to be one of the prophets, one of the two witnesses that goes out to show the world what God is like, you will be doomed. You will die, but you will rise. You will be resurrected. Because we are children, if you remember our very first week of this series, one of our implications was the central truth to the book of Revelation is something that has already happened in the death, burial, and 
resurrection of Jesus. It's the only thing that sets us free to lay our life down, is to believe that the order of death really isn't as big of a deal as it thinks it is. The, the order of death is the Conor McGregor to the, that's a horrible illustration. It's a horrible illustration. It's really not that big of a deal but you have to believe that there's something bigger and grander at stake than your singular human experience. You're a part of, you are a witness and a prophet to a God who always has been, always will be, and whose workers stand with one foot on the land and one foot on the sea. Okay, so, okay, all right. Now, we need to close this thing up, so I'm gonna invite our servers if they wanna go back. Uh, to, to hand out our bread and our juice for the Eucharist this morning. If you're visiting with us, we have an open table. What that means is if you wanna celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, you are family, and you need to join us this morning. So just hold on to that bread, hold on to that juice, and we'll take it all together here in just a moment. As they do that, we have some implications to work through, as we always do. First implication, God's created order is eternal. Everything else is temporary. Anything that doesn't belong in God's created order is temporary. This is a hard thing to believe in. This is hard. Does cancer belong in God's created order? I'll ask that question because I want an answer. Does cancer belong in God's created order? No. Cancer is temporary. Now you say, excuse me, I've had lots of people that I'm very close to, so have I, die from cancer. We all have, haven't we? That only gets the last word if you don't believe in what? Resurrection. Do we believe that resurrection truly gets the last word? Because if we do, then the horrible experiences we have in this world, we realize are the temporary intruder that does not belong in God's eternal created order. This is why we would get up and go through chemo treatments and other treatments and fight this thing even when we know where it ultimately goes. Why? Because we are children of resurrection. We are not children of despair and death. We are children of life. This, God's created order is eternal. And we've all had people that we're close to that have fought Raise your hand if you know somebody personally that has fought cancer like a stinking champ. Yeah. Why? Because life conquers death. Because the resurrection happens. But you have to actually believe this because if you think that the most important thing is your earthly experience, you will have a hard time laying your life down on behalf of the mission. Next implication. When others oppress you, pray for light. Pray for truth. 
pray for Messiah. Here's what the Jews meant by this. When you are oppressed, go backwards and realize that there are people that have come before you that have walked the path of suffering like you wouldn't believe. You are part of a long line of people who have suffered and who have overcame. Pray for light, pray for truth, pray for Messiah, pray for Elijah, pray for Moses. That's a Jewish way of saying go backwards Look back, when, you're, when you are despaired about what lies before you, turn around and look at what lies behind you. Because when you truly see that, you will be emboldened to turn around and say, since I am surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, that cloud, I'm gonna run. And I'm gonna run and ultimately God is going to win and I'm going to be a runner in his great race. Next implication. <clears throat> God's people are the prophetic witness to the world, particularly in times of trial and tribulation. God's people are the prophetic witness to the world, particularly in times of trial and tribulation. This is why when we have lived from a place of privilege, Christianity has always suffered. And when we have lived out of great, like literal persecution, like not Starbucks won't put Merry Christmas on your coffee cup, like real persecution, like people who die, persecution, like 40 people on the beaches of Libya, persecution, like of that kind of persecution, the church explodes. Because that's where we have the opportunity. I don't pray for that, I hope my kids don't have to go through that, I get it, but we struggle to be God's witnesses from a place of privilege. And trial and tribulation calls us to buck up and show up and be a part of the thing that God called us to be a part of. When trouble comes, don't just pray for light, do that. Don't just pray for Elijah, don't just pray for Moses, don't just pray for Messiah, do that, do that. But then when trouble comes, be light, be the truth, and be the Messiah in the world because you are as close to that as the world is ever going to see because you are the runners and the competitors in God's great race. Yes. All right, now, and I've said this before, but we do this every single week, and I'll say it every single week until the Lord takes me from this earth. There's a lot of things that we can think of when we come to the table, but every week we come to the table and one of the things that this is, is a reminder, a reminder of the example, the example that Jesus laid down for us. This, ladies and gentlemen, is what it looks like. It does not look like that. It doesn't look like that. That doesn't get the last word. That gets taught, spoiler alert, that gets tossed in the lake of fire at the end. What remains victorious is the slain lamb. What do you truly believe runs the world? That or this? And this is our opportunity to say, I struggle. I fail at this every single day of every single week, Jesus, but I wanna be in. I wanna be in.
I want to stand in 144,000. Let me be counted amongst them. That night, Jesus took a piece of bread. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples. He said, take and eat. This is my body. Whenever you do this, remember me. Let's remember the slain lamb today. And later in the meal, he took a cup. He said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. Whenever you do this, remember me. Let's remember what it looks like to follow the slain lamb. Father God, it is so hard to try to preach on and relate to and hear the book of Revelation in our world. I love to sit in my office and study it. It's such an academic theme park. It is so hard in a world where we struggle with our own comfort and our own leisure and our own ideas of power, control, privilege. We, we fear losing these things, these idols that we that yell out to us to cling to them. God, as we talk about these two witnesses, we talk about being Elijah. I remember the fire that Elijah had to call out the idolatry of the world and say, Israel, choose today whether or not you wanna serve the idols of Baal or the God who created it all. God, I pray that that same fiery passion of Elijah might somewhere burn in us this week and we might hear this inner voice, the voice of your Holy Spirit sounding an awful lot like Elijah saying, there it is, there's that idol. Choose today who you wanna serve. God, I pray we would, we would walk away from our Mount Carmel's with a new understanding of who our God is and what he looks like. God, help us to run the race well. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray this morning. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com.